I thought I'd start out um, with something a little bit fun today. A Catholic nun who taught catechism classes over many, many years collected her favorite answers that kids gave to tests. The kids wrote these, and she later published them in this little kind of booklet thing. And the answers that follow are statements about the Bible that just a few of these kids gave. No corrections have been made, so all the spelling is exactly the way it showed up on her test. Here's what some of the children wrote. The first book of the Bible is Genesis, which I can't agree more. Um, God got tired of creating the world, so he took the Sabbath off. That's pretty good. Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. And Noah built an ark, which the animals came to to eat pears. I love this one. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day, but a fireball by night. Fireball. Okay. The the Jews were a proud people, and throughout history, they had trouble with unsympathetic genitals. Which explains a lot about that circumcision thing. Oh, man. Samson was a strong man who let himself be led astray by a Jezebel like Delilah. That's pretty good. Samson slayed the Philistines with the Acts of the Apostles. Moses led the Hebrews to the Red Sea, where they made unleavened bread, which is bread without any ingredients. That's pretty good. The Egyptians were all drowned in the desert. Afterwards, Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. Yeah. The first first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. (laughs) I don't know who that kid is, but I like him. I like that kid. The seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. (laughs) Oh, man. Moses died before he ever reached Canada. Then Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jericho. The greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed him. Man, that's that's real right there. I got a two-year-old. That's real. David was a Hebrew king, skilled at playing the liar. Spelling's important. He found he fought with the Finkelsteins, a race of people that lived in biblical times. That's pretty good. Solomon, one of David's sons, had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. There's a lesson there. When Mary heard that she was the mother of Jesus, she sang the Magna Carta. History buffs, that's fun. St. John was a blacksmith, dumped water on Jesus' head. That's good. It was a miracle when Jesus rode from the dead and managed to get the tombstone off the entrance. That's that's some cultural stuff there. The people who followed the Lord were called the Twelve Decibels. The epistles were the wives of the apostles. That's that's pretty logical right there. One of the possums was St. Matthew. He was also a taxi man. That's good. St. Paul, St. Paul converted to Christianity. There's a lot of people who think that. He preached holy acrimony, which is another name for marriage. That's pretty good. Christians have only one spouse. This is called monotony. Oh, man. Believe it or not, I had to pull out a couple of them because they were still a little too racy for Sunday morning. Ah, I think one of the reasons we 
love kids so much and they're so good for us is because they, they remind us we don't have to have all the right answers to follow Jesus. Our Savior gathered kids just like the kids who wrote these answers and told all the adults standing around that the kingdom belongs to, to these kind of people. This morning is the second Sunday of Lent. We're continuing to work through our lectionary passages for the week. Last week I started off by telling you first how much fun I had studying all week, but uh, we looked at the temptations of Jesus passage where Matthew describes the way that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. And as Matthew's telling the story of the temptation of Jesus, he's also telling another story. Uh, as we looked at the passage and we found out that everything Jesus was going through, really from the baptism, you know, the baptism and the, and the Israelites going through the Red Sea, and then Jesus' first temptation was was with bread, and the Israelites' first temptation was with bread, with manna. And we, we talked about how Matthew's telling two stories at once, and Matthew's doing this to show that where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus was tempted and passed. Israel was tempted and, and didn't pass. He reminded us that Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. Where he succeeded, we failed. If you missed it, go online and listen While breaking down these parallel stories, we found that the ultimate temptation that the enemy throws at us has not really changed much. When Adam, or when Satan spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, he started out by, did God really say? He challenged God's word from the very beginning. And in Jesus' temptation story, we find it was the exact same thing. The very last thing we hear from Jesus' life was God speaking down from heaven going, this is my beloved son. And it says Jesus immediately went into the wilderness And the first thing out of Satan's mouth is, if you really are the Son of God. Basically, did God really say he attacked the Word of God? I think that most temptation boils down to an attack on the Word of God. Did God really say? Well, this morning we're moving from a super familiar scene to maybe the most quoted passage in all of the Bible. So we're going to start with the text. There was a man named Nicodemus a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your your miraculous signs are evident that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit can give birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible, Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you're a respected Jewish leader, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you of earthly things, how can you be, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only, his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent his son in the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, it would be hard to overstate um, the impact this passage has had on the church. It contains that great phrase, you must be 
born again. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again. The impact that this has had uh, is immeasurable. Interestingly enough, this phrase has been interpreted very differently over church history. Uh, for a long time, this passage was understood to mean that just like in any birth, there had to be a pregnancy. And so for years, the church used this passage to say that a, a convert would need some preparation time, would need some development time before they were officially accepted into the kingdom of God. And they used this verse as their evidence for that, which is very different than the kind of birth as this explosive all-in-one-moment conversion experience that we kind of hold to today. In other periods of history, this verse was used to, to mean death, that you couldn't see the kingdom of God until you were born again. So you would be born, you would die, and then you would, after you die, you would go to heaven. The church interpreted it that way for, for a while. So the interpretation of this verse has changed dramatically over the course of 2,000 years. But one thing that has not changed is that this passage has been majorly formative in the church since the day John wrote it. And I think Nicodemus does a pretty good job of showing us exactly why that is. So let's dig in a little bit. First thing I want to discuss is the setting. This is at nighttime, and there's been a lot of speculation as to why Nicodemus came to Jesus's at night. One of the most popular is that Nicodemus was kind of trying to be sneaky and stay away from, so his, so his buddies didn't see him talking to Jesus, which may be, but one thing we have to remember is that this is Jerusalem. Jesus actually isn't from Jerusalem. He's from Galilee, which was quite a ways away. So usually he only came down to Jerusalem for festivals and things. So this is probably festival time in Jerusalem, which meant everybody gathered at the temple. And so daytimes were spent reading and giving commentary on and explaining the Torah in the temple. It was a very public format, and all serious inquiry was made at night. So it would have been, if a rabbi in Jerusalem was was in the temple uh, in this kind of formal setting, and somebody wanted to talk to him and ask some questions about it, it would be kind of like you guys in the middle of my sermon raising your hand to ask questions, which I'm not totally against. I'm still kind of open to that, but I haven't ruled it out. But all I say is that just because Nicodemus came at night doesn't mean he was being sneaky. That was very common in that time, that you would go listen to commentary all day, and then at nighttime you would get together and you would talk about what things mean, and you would you would actually dig into to the more conversation. It's like having a small group. So you had church on the day and small group at night where you could actually ask questions and, and, and talk. So it seems to me more that Nicodemus really does want to learn. It's not just that he was hiding out and, talking to Jesus on the down low, he wants to learn. If he wanted to trap Jesus and catch him in a contradiction or something like that, he would have done that during the day. I make this point because I think we need more of this. In the West, we tend to be so binary. Like we feel like it's everything's either or. You have to believe that or this. Everything is broken up into camps. And half the stuff we disagree with, we don't even know why we disagree with it. We just know the other camp is for it, so I'm supposed to be against it. Like that's kind of the way we approach Everything. And usually when we show up on our camp, we're like, hey, what's my list of things I'm supposed to believe over here? Okay, got it. Check. I'm in. You know, I read a meme this week. I thought it was awesome. I actually put it on my computer. It said, people keep asking me my political affiliations. I say, I think gay married couples should be able to protect their marijuana plants with really, really big guns. <laughs> what camp do I belong in? So right off the bat, we have to understand that what Nicodemus does here is he engages in genuine inquiry, which is such a novel idea. Nicodemus isn't trying to prove his side. He's going to ask real questions. He's not trying to defend the faith. Which, by the way, some of you may hate me for this, which is okay. 
the phrase defend the faith is a horrible phrase. That is a horrible phrase. If you're being defensive, you're not in a posture to learn. You guys kind of get how that works. You can't both defend and be open to learn at the same time. You're basically saying, I know everything I want to know, and my job now is to protect all those things so that I don't know any more things or any less things. I just want to make sure I keep believing the things I believe. I will fight off everything else and defend everything else and hopefully get some people to believe that way with me. The word disciple in the Greek is the word mathetes. Mathetes? Mathetes. I don't pronounce Greek very well. Which means a learner or a pupil. So go into the world and make learners, not go into the world and make defenders. So I'm not a big fan of the, I do think there's some times for apologetics. There's some times to explain why we believe what we believe, but this attitude that it's our job to to defend it and make sure nobody, you know, I, I think that's a bad posture. Anyway, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night outside of the ring where all the defending happens, and he comes as a learner. And uh, the most frustrating part of this whole passage for me is we have no idea what he came to ask Jesus about. Like the conversation never gets there. We never get to learn what Nicodemus, what amazing theological questions he was actually going to ask. Look at this. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evident that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, explained Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb again and be born again? Nicodemus basically gives this little preamble saying that, you know, Jesus, you're amazing. Jesus cuts him off, says you have to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, wait, what? Like, <laughs> we have no idea what Nicodemus actually came to ask, which kind of drives me crazy. But the conversation we do get is great anyway. So we'll go with that. But Jesus tells Nicodemus you have to be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of God. And this stops Nicodemus right in his tracks, and rightfully so. There's nothing in the Old Testament that hints toward this. This is kind of an out-of-the-blue, out-of-nowhere statement. And what makes it worse is when Nicodemus freaks out, Jesus kind of rebukes him. He goes, Jesus replied, you're a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't know these things? But what happens next is what I think is really important. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me... When I tell you of earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you of heavenly things? The language gets a little thick here, so I'm going to see if I can paint a picture. It's a little easier. Nicodemus hears Jesus, sees him in a public venue, and likes what he hears. So he goes at night for some, to ask some real questions. Daytime is basically like Facebook. It's like where people go to fight and make themselves look good. Uh, nothing there, nothing good happens there. So. At night, he goes to ask Jesus some questions. Nicodemus seeks out Jesus, huge sign of respect. Nicodemus opens up by saying, I know God sent you to talk to me and teach me. Jesus says, yeah, number, number one, you have to be born again. Nicodemus, just a few seconds after saying, I know that you came from God and you're the one who's supposed to teach us. Jesus says something. Nicodemus goes, wait a minute, that can't be right. And Jesus is like, dude, you, you came to me. Like You're the one who came to me saying, I am come from God. And the very first thing I tell you, you're not even going to believe. Like the very first thing I say, you're challenging me on. How am I going to give you deeper stuff if the very first thing out of my mouth you challenge? Nicodemus trips over his own logic, which introduces this week's roadblock. Logic, human logic. Oftentimes our human logic gets in the way of us receiving from God. I don't think this has always been the case. I think we can actually almost pinpoint the moment this entered the church. The philosopher Rene Descartes was a devout believer. He credits an angel visiting him and giving him the revelation of analytical geometry. Like, 
that when he came up with his thesis, cogito ergo sum, he, he ran to the church and lit a candle, like, as worship to God for giving him this amazing revelation. This was a, this was a committed believer in Jesus. And he went on this thought experiment where he decided he was going to doubt everything you could possibly doubt. You could, like, anything, like, he even came up with, anybody ever seen the movie The Matrix? Believe it or not, that's from Descartes. To him, it was what he called an evil demon, like, that we're basically a brain in a bottle, and this evil demon's putting all the ideas in our head. Like, he he doubted everything that could be doubted, even what you can feel, think. Like, he was like, I might just be laying in bed looking at a wall, but a demon is putting all these thoughts in my head, making me think I'm moving and doing things. He doubted everything. At the end of the at the end of the experiment, he said, "The one thing I can't doubt is that I'm sitting here going through this thought experiment. Like I'm the one asking the questions. So I think, therefore, I exist. I am. I cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am." And so he came up with this, and he was all excited about it. I found one thing you can't doubt, and that's that I'm here asking questions. But then he did the second thing, and he said, "And if I'm here, something had to cause me to be here. And maybe you could say that's my parents, but something had to cause them to be here." Maybe that's their parents, but something had to cause them to be there. And he went, an infinite regression of, of caused causes is illogical. And an infinite regression of caused causes is illogical. And he's like, so there has to be an initial uncaused cause. There has to be a beginning, an uncaused cause. And he said, that had to be God. So if I exist, and I can basically prove I exist, something had to make me exist. And if you take that back far enough, there was an original uncaused cause which was God. And I think the reason he stuck with God was because you can't sing uncaused cause. I tried it. Oh, uncaused cause. You are my uncaused cause. Doesn't fit well. <laughs> so he went with God. He stuck with God. And the church celebrated Descartes. They were really excited that he came to this. And they were like, this man has just proven the existence of God. And they, and he was excited. The church was excited. But something very tiny had shifted. Something changed. From this point forward, God didn't exist because he said he existed. He now existed because it made sense that he existed. Like from that point on, there was a really small shift in human thought that now things were true if they made sense to be true. And before that, if if the scripture said it, people believed it because it came from the scripture. Now, only if it really makes sense. Do I declare it to be true? That feels like a tiny thing, because at the end of the day, he still came to the conclusion that God existed. But a tiny little shift had happened in human thought. From that moment forward, the Bible was only real where it made sense to be real, where it was logical for it to be real, which was a huge shift. This set off the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution. This moment in time where, where Descartes shifted the measure of truth, the metric of truth from God to the human intellect, Everything changed. Like I say, the, the enlightenment happened. The scientific revolution happened. Everybody, all of thought shifted. For something to be true, it has to make sense. And this dominates our theology. In Christendom, we all study the same book, but we divide it into these really clean theological camps where we basically gather our favorite verses and we make them all fit into a nice, clean, logical puzzle. The thing is, the other camp has their systematic theology and they gather their favorite verses and they put them in their nice little clean puzzle. And then we read a verse like, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And we all take it like a puzzle piece and we go, okay, where's that going to fit in? I guess right over here. Perfect. Nothing's damaged. It's all still together. Which is fine, except when Nicodemus tries to figure out this new idea 
and where it's going to fit into his theology, he was forced to ask for clarification. Okay, so how does this fit the rest of my theological picture? And here's how Jesus clears things up for him. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Now this makes sense, right? We're all, this is logical. This flows from that, from normal thought. In fact, it probably made more sense to Nicodemus than it did us, because to Jews, like, where you're born and your lineage is everything. You know, they were, they all trace their lineage back to Abraham, but even tribal, you know, lineage was important to them. So this idea that to be in the lineage of God, you would need to be born of God probably made sense to, to, uh, Nicodemus. And then Jesus clarifies things even more. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from, where it's going, just so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Interesting fact, this idea of being born again only shows up twice in the Bible. Once in this passage, and then Peter references it once in his first letter. So it's only mentioned twice in the whole Bible, but can you imagine the amount of time that's gone into discussing and debating and teaching and studying, praying and learning this question of what does it mean to be born again? Exactly how does this born again process work, right? I mean, would you guys agree this is a pretty big question? I mean, how how many of you guys have heard somebody tell you how to be born again? Anybody? Yeah, most of us. In fact, how many of you feel relatively confident that if you walked out of here today, you could tell somebody how to be born again? Most of us. Yeah. I spent much of my adult life telling people how to be born again. Which is really weird since Jesus said, you can't know how people are born in the Spirit. Right? That's my job. You can't explain how people are born in the Spirit. But we try. I mean, this is a this is a big question, and it, it should be. Jesus said, "If you're not, you can't you can't see the kingdom of heaven." So this is a big question. This is really important. And how does Jesus clear it up for us by saying, "Oh, it's like wind. You don't know where it starts. You don't know where it's heading. But you sure know when it's there." So yeah, that's exactly what being born again is like. Am I the only one that finds that a highly unsatisfactory answer? We need something cleaner, right? We need something more binary. You either are or you aren't. Something measurable. Only Jesus had given that. Well, just in case I haven't upset or confused anyone enough, I'm going to throw a few more logs on the fire. We're going to look at a few passages about people in the New Testament who we would assume were either saved or born again, or had their sins forgiven. And let's see if we can maybe extrapolate a bit of methodology to this this idea of how we are saved. Let's start with the fact that we need to be born again. Jesus made that clear right now. So it's apparently something you are. You either are born or you aren't born. So it's it's something you are. Let's look next. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you are in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the the thief being crucified next to him. And this is a good one because Jesus basically confirms with the guy, you get it, you got it, you're in. So we know this is a good one. So apparently it's something we ask for, like heaven. Like 
So it's something we are, like born, and it's something we ask for, like heaven. Okay, getting clearer. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, that sounds pretty black and white, doesn't it? Except it muddies things up a little bit. So is it something we do? Is there something we we do? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Okay, that's super clear. So it's something we do. So it's something we are, it's something we ask for, and it's something we do. Okay, getting clear now. And you will be hated by all of my, by all for my namesake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. So maybe it's not something, maybe it's something we endure. We just endure stuff. We can't give up. We just don't give up. So it's something we are. It's something we ask for. It's something we do and it's something we endure. Got it. But he who believes and is baptized will be saved. For he who does not believe will be condemned. Well, that's pretty clear. Very little ambiguity in that verse. We have to believe and be baptized. Black and white. So it's something we are. It's something we ask for. It's something we do. Something we endure. It's something we believe, and it's the ceremonial thing we participate in. Got it. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house. All Zacchaeus really does is promise to do stuff. Actually promises to make restitution, to do justice. And Jesus said that, that on this day, salvation is here. So we know it worked. So maybe it's something we are, something we ask for, something we do, something we endure, something we believe, the ceremony we go through, and the promise to do justice. Then behold, they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed, and Jesus saw their faith. And he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Well, that's really weird. Because that sounds like something somebody else did. When Jesus saw their faith, he told the man, your sins are forgiven. So something we are, something we ask for, something we do, something we endure, something we believe, a ceremony we follow, something we promise to do, and something someone else does for us. Getting clearer? As he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So that's an easy one. Just do that. Just have a really big religious experience, right? And what exactly does Paul do here? Did he ask the right question, Who are you, Lord? Or was it something that was done to him? Did the flash do the work? So it's something we are, something we ask for, something we do, something we endure, something we believe, a ceremony we follow, something we promise to do, something someone else does for us, and something God does. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So maybe to get saved, you have to respond to a message that someone else preaches. And and if they don't show up, maybe you're simply lost. Believe it or not, I could I could go on. There's more. 
Jesus says, nobody comes to the Father. Nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. What about all the babies who die? Where do they fit in? We want so bad to tie a neat bow around what it means to be saved. And we should want to do this, right? This is the whole enchilada. We're talking about reconciliation with God and as a bonus, eternity. This is kind of a big deal. And every theological camp survives on this question. Either God did it, or we choose it, or we earn it, or we accomplish it through a list of sacraments that appropriate it, or some hybrid of these. Much of the division in the church is built on the desire to clean up all of this ambiguity. And I wish I could fully clean it up for you, but I can't. But I think we can maybe do better. I honestly think that Jesus cleared things up just a bit right here in this conversation with Nicodemus. <laughs> Real quick question. Is anyone sitting here in so much cognitive dissonance that you're just dying for me to fix this? Anybody? Like, dear God, where's he going? And I hope he fixes it. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind. I can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Has you ever walked outside on a day like today when the wind's blowing and the first thing to hit your mind is, I wonder where that wind came from. God, I hope it's not a Olathe. Anybody? Or do you immediately walk through the house, back into the house after hitting the wind, and be like, dude, I don't know where that wind has been. I'm not going out there. Gross. If it's wind, you assume it's wind, right? If you're in my house, there are some things you smell, and you know exactly where they came from. That's a different thing, but... And if the fan is blowing your hair back, do you, do you say it's not really wind, because I know exactly where it started? Maybe I'll use a different metaphor and it'll make a little more sense. If I asked you if you were alive today, would you go get your birth certificate? If I asked you if you were alive right now, would you tell me your birth story? My mom was in labor for 26 hours. In other words, the proof of life is not that you were born. If you want to know if you're alive... Take your pulse. Breathe on a mirror. Pinch yourself and see if it hurts. Jesus says spiritual life is like wind. If you can feel it, it's there. I'm going to rip off Descartes a little. He said, I think, therefore I exist. I'm saying, I breathe, therefore I'm alive. Why make it more complicated than that? Nicodemus gets tripped up here on his logic How can an old man be, how does that even work? He gets caught up in the how this can happen. Jesus seems to say, drop the logic. The fact is that it happens. The important thing is that you're alive. Not just that you were born. Here's what I do know. Jesus told us to, Go into the world and make disciples, right? That's like the Great Commission. That's what we're supposed to do. Go into the world and make disciples. That's our job. It seems like if we want to do our job well, we should like see how it's done. We should look at the master. How did the master make disciples? How did this guy truly make 
disciples. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said, follow me. So he rose and followed him. And just like that, from now on, Matthew's considered a disciple. Every time he's listed, he's one of the disciples. Jesus said, follow me. And he did. So just like I wouldn't check your birth certificate to find out if you're alive, I don't know that the appropriate question to whether or not you are a follower of Jesus is to, act, is to ask exactly how you became a disciple in the first place. I want to know if you're alive. Maybe it's better to take your pulse. If I want to know if you're a disciple, maybe I should ask, are you following? Are you following Jesus? And by golly, if you are, I'm certainly not going to double check, you know, double back and say, well, tell me exactly what you prayed and how it happened and when it happened. People sometimes ask me, I seriously get this question. They'll ask me, hey, I prayed at a church camp when I was a kid and kind of became a Christian, but I never really followed God. I've been following God for about the last year. Does that prayer back there count? To which I almost always go, I have no clue, but the fact you've been following him for a year certainly does. <laughs> that probably means more than what happened at church camp, right? I mean, people, if the Bible's right, people don't just follow God for no reason. I don't know if, when you were born, but I'd say you're alive. Personally, I answered an altar call my sophomore year in high school. I literally ran to the altar. I was the first one there. But I've been seeking God before that. I went to church before that. I sought God. I prayed. I've had several monumental, life-changing moments with God since. Which one was the real one? No clue. But I know I have a pulse. Esther can't remember a day when she didn't believe in Jesus. Or some of her earliest memories are of Jesus. She remembers a point where she was kind of like, oh, he did that for me. But if that was the point at which she got saved, did, did none of the other stuff before that count? I don't know. I know she has a pulse. One of my favorite theological statements ever, Carl Barth, whenever somebody would ask him when he got saved, he would go 33 AD. That's way deeper than you would think at first. <laughs> How do we respond to this? This is Lent, so these messages are supposed to be a little uncomfortable. And for some of us, this one really is. For some of us, this is maybe the most uncomfortable sermon you've ever heard me preach. Because it's picking on some of the most fundamental tenets of our faith. And I'm one of those. I love systematic theology. This is my favorite seminary class. I left every time feeling amazing. Everything fits. It's all in one place. It's tight. Oh, I love it. Until I tried to read the Bible afterwards. And I'm like, oh crap, where does that fit? I guess I'll stick it in over here. No, because then those two won't work. I'll put it under here. No, because that falls apart. It may sound like narrowing it down to just follow Jesus is the lazy way out. But for me, it was a, it was a giant surrender. It almost broke me. I didn't oversimplify what it means to follow Jesus because I didn't want to do the hard work of studying it out. I drove my wife crazy. 
I mean, I would come in, I'd come <laughs> from work, no matter what I say from this point on, no matter what comes out of my mouth, I'm a Calvinist. That's just what I am. I don't care what happens. Two days later. Okay, forget what I said. I am an Arminian forever. Like, that's no more changing. That's what I am. I can't do this anymore. I'd come back in two days later. I don't know which one it is. And my wife always had the same answer. You need to turn that off and listen to some fiction. And just, you've got to settle down a little bit. The world's not going to end if you don't figure this one out. You've got to sit down and read some fiction. Whenever I talk about this, people ask me if I'm still an evangelical. Do I still believe in a conversion experience? And absolutely I do. We went from death to life. And I think the metaphor of birth is the best metaphor I can think of for that. Does that mean I understand exactly how it happens? Not even close. I've delivered babies. I'm, I'm pretty well informed on how to make them. I can administer first aid, CPR to keep somebody alive. I can take a pulse. I can check respiration. But do I claim to understand what the spark is that, that is life? Not even close. I can recognize life. I can recognize death. But no, I can't, I can't explain exactly how it happens. I feel the exact same way about spiritual life. I don't generally do altar calls, but if somebody felt like they want to come forward and said, hey, I want to follow Jesus. I don't know how it starts. What do I do? Absolutely. I would pray with you. We would pray a prayer. It's very similar to one I prayed when I got saved. And guess what? If somebody came up and I felt like there was something huge in your life that was blocking you from following Jesus, I would say, I think you need to drop this first. Jesus once told the rich young ruler, hey, if you want to follow me, you've got to sell everything you have and follow me. Does that mean the rich young ruler had to do something to get saved? I don't know. I just know it was in the way of him following Jesus. And yeah, if I see that, if I feel like you've got rampant unforgiveness in your life that is blocking you from Jesus, I'm going to tell you you need to forgive and follow Jesus. Does that mean you have to do something? I have no clue. I don't know. I just know that's what it says. St. Augustine believed his mother prayed him into salvation. I mean, Augustine couldn't have gotten to heaven without his mom? I don't know. I do know Augustine turned out to be a pretty fantastic disciple. If somebody comes to me and says they want to follow Jesus, I'll probably recommend they get baptized. Not probably. I'll recommend they get baptized. Because Jesus said, believe and be baptized. He just said to. I mean, if you're on your deathbed and you don't have time to get baptized, I think you go to hell. Not even close. Not even remotely close. The truth is, and this is the part that will sting some of us, we don't know as much as we think we do. I can tell you with all certainty in me that you need to follow Jesus. It changes everything, literally. You need to follow Jesus. It is like being born again. For some of you, this probably isn't a comfortable message. But for others of you, it might be. It might be relief. See, when Jesus tried to communicate these kind of things, he generally used narrative. It's, it's like this son who was spoiled and ran away. And when he hit bottom, he came back to God and found him. <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to tell this story without crying. Ah, he came back and found God waiting for him with his arms open. You want to know what being saved is like? It's like that kid. That's how Jesus talked about it. 
He says like a shepherd who loses one of his sheep. He's got a flock of them and he loses one. And he goes out and finds it and carries it back on his shoulders. That's what it's like. It's like somebody who found a treasure that was so amazing, he sold everything and bought the field so he could have it. That's what salvation is like. What he doesn't give us is complicated theology and and how-to. And some of us like that. So please, if you're one of the people who feels like the Christian life is too complicated, there's so many rules and so many ways to mess it up, and there's such a razor-thin line to do it right, please relax. Just follow Jesus. Keep coming to church. Keep soaking in the Word of God. Stay connected to the people of God. Trust the Holy Spirit's going to work on you. Maybe sing a worship song or two. You know what I love about modern worship music is, is sometimes it drops the logic. You know what I mean? Like one of the criticisms it gets against hymns, and I love hymns. Hymns are my favorite because I'm a logical thinker. But there was so much theology in the rich hymns that your mind could sit there and, and play while you're worshiping. And sometimes we just need to go, Jesus, I love you. I mean, how deep would my relationship with my wife get if all I ever did was read our marriage certificate and our vows over and over and over again? Like if I walked in, I'd been gone from her all day and I hadn't seen her. And instead of saying, I miss you, I go, I vow to honor and keep you in sickness and in health. And then if all I did was talk about what made us a couple in the beginning and not just, I am so in love with you. I missed you all day long. Some of the newer music allows us to do that, allows us to let go of some of the rational and just go, Jesus, I love you. Anyway, if you do that, if you show up, if you connect with God's people, if you worship, if you take in the Word of God, say a few prayers. You know what I call that? A pulse. I call that a pulse. Is there more to the Christian life? Of course. Is there more to learn? Yes. Is there more to do? Absolutely. Does the spiritual life get more complicated? Does spiritual health and vitality require something more of us? Yes. But those things are the treasures. Those are the treasures in the Christian life, not the prerequisites. Those are not what we have to do to get there. Jesus says, follow me, and we follow. And then we have all this richness to dig into. We have all these things, and and I can stay up all night and debate with you. Ask Jennifer Johnson. We've done it dozens of times. And we'll, and we'll go as deep as you want to go. That's not what you have to do to get in the door. After Nicodemus stumbled over Jesus' very first point, and Jesus rebukes him a little, Jesus sums up the conversation with maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, for this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have Eternal life. As much as we all love this verse, I, as much time as we spend breaking down what that means and how it works, the next verse is the one I think we actually need to get into our guts. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. I have teenagers and sometimes, it's actually true of the two-year-old too. In fact, it's not always a lot of difference. One of the hardest things to get through to your teenagers is that I have their best interest in mind. 
It's like they seem to come wired believing that my whole soul purpose in life is to make their life less fun and more miserable. And all things being equal, I think they think I take joy in them not having any. I don't think any of them would articulate it that way, but it just seems like that's the underlying approach. And I think sometimes we have that mindset with God. Like we just assume he wants to make things hard. We just assume it has to be complicated. We just assume that it's not going to be any fun at all. And I think that's why preachers lean on hell so much. We just assume the Christian life's going to be such a drag. If we don't threaten you with something much, much worse, no one's going to sign up. But Jesus closes with the statement, I came to save. I know it seems like semantics, but can you feel the potential in that statement? If we really believed it, I came to save you. Everything I say, everything I do is to save you. It's for, it's because I love you. It's for your good. I came to save you. When everything I do in my teenager's life is motivated by my love for them. My two-year-old wants to stick things in an outlet. It's not, you know, and then when I tell him no, he like grumps about it. His new thing is, leave me alone. What he says. He got it from his mom. Leave me alone. (laughs) She reads my sermons and she read this and was like, good, you don't throw me under the bus anywhere. So that's not in my notes. (laughs) And of course, the only thing making me say no is that I love him. I don't want to see him get hurt. And that is minuscule to the way Jesus loves us. He basically tells Nicodemus, I didn't come to make this hard. I didn't come to make it complicated. I didn't come to trip over things so that I could go, ah, sucker, off to hell for you. In our attempts to figure everything out, we sometimes start to feel like Jesus came to fulfill prophecy. He came to demonstrate what perfection looked like. He came to break the power of sin and death. You know, and we spend all this time talking about what all that means. And he did all those things. He absolutely did. But according to Jesus here, none of those were the reason he came. He did everything to save you. I could be wrong, but I think if Jesus stepped out of heaven... And he descended to earth and he took on human flesh and he lived the life we couldn't live, suffered terribly and died the death we were supposed to die and destroyed death by raising again to life. Of course he's going to make it easy. Why would he go through all that and then make it hard? Follow me. I did all the work. Now you follow me. This is why he was able to say stuff like my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come and I'll give you rest. Came to save you. Don't allow your desire to make everything make sense and make everything fit to overshadow that. At the end of the day, he came to save you. So today as we gather around the table and we sing this last song together, do me a favor and just pause for a moment and kind of take your spiritual pulse. 
am I alive? Am I breathing? Am I, am I, am I following Jesus? Is, is he what I'm thinking about? Is he, is he kind of what I'm aiming my life at? Is he, is, is his opinion of what's going on in my life important to me? Am I, am I following Jesus? If you are, if you have a pulse, if you can feel the wind, thank God for that. Don't question it. That's what he came for, was to save you. And if not, and you want to talk and pray about it afterwards, I'll, I'll hang around up here. Let's go to the table. Lord Jesus, we spend every week with these elements sitting center stage right in front of us, reminding us that you gave yourself for us. Reminding us that you sacrificed yourself for us. Pray as we come today and we partake in this ancient, ancient ritual. Above all else, we know that this was for us. You loved us that much. You were out of your mind crazy in love with us. There's just nothing more you could possibly do to prove that to us. Let that go deep. Because it changes everything. It changes everything the way we look at everything that comes later. Is that this was for us because you love us. Walk away with that. Walk away with everything. In Jesus' name. Amen.